In our second class in this series, we considered God's first judgment when death was righteously introduced into a degraded creation operating order due to the contradiction to the Creator's righteousness, that, that first sin that corrupted that previously very good creative order and introduced death into a very different natural order. Now let's consider our last judgment. Now, this won't be God's last judgment, but it will be ours. The final judgment in the creation project is scheduled for the eighth millennium, after the conclusion of the millennial kingdom, after the last rebellion against God's authority is crushed in a, a reverse Jericho procedure where everyone outside the city, the beloved city, is destroyed. But our considerations will address the last judgment that we will personally face that will result in one of two conclusions. We will either be awarded eternal life or condemned to eternal death. There will be no more opportunities to repent or recalibrate our focus or energies to encourage a reapproval from our judge. This final judgment, at least from our perspective, will take place at some point over the next 10 years. We can be certain of this due to the number of direct and shadow prophecies identifying the second salvation event in the Creator's plan as being scheduled for 2,000 years from the first. Those familiar with the Visions of the Kingdom Age class series may remember the fairly long string of divine testimony validating that understanding, such as Hosea 6, that defines the resurrection of the saints as being after two days and on the third day. Uh, we read that, Come, let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. Now we can see the surgical redundancy in the threefold pattern of torn and heal, smitten and bind up, and then revive and raise up, followed by the surgically redundant timestamp for this resurrection language of after two days and on the third day. If it's on the third day, then it's obviously after two days. But redundancy is an expression tool of our Creator that gives more to those who already have while simultaneously taking away from those who have not. Redundant expressions are usually dismissed as un unnecessary, but God uses this tool to reveal, reveal significant truths that are hidden from those who do not have ears to hear. This intentionally complex testimony is highlighting the first two of the three resurrections in the Creator's plan, pinpointing the timing of that second resurrection as being two full divine days after the first, ending up at the beginning of the third day, following that first of three resurrections in the Creator's plan that will take place over three divine days, three millenniums. Now, this indicates the resurrection and salvation of the saints being referenced would be two millenniums after the previous similar event, which was our Messiah's resurrection. Now, this is scheduled just after the 2,000-year mark and the beginning of the third millennium since the resurrection of Jesus. One of those three-dimensional validations of this understanding is how verse 3 
uh, of Hosea 6, places this prophecy in the context of defining that event in the terms describing the end of God's terms of self-imposed silence, which ends at the introduction of the Millennial Kingdom, the beginning of that third day. This is done by identifying this prophesied resurrection event with the sun rising and the latter rains. Darkness and drought were the exact parallels God used in Micah and Amos to define when the sun would go down over the prophets and there would be a famine of the word of God. Hosea's prophecy here in chapter 6 is a rather direct prophecy for the timing of the first resurrection of the saints, which of course follows the judgment, which is our subject. We also considered the timestamps from promise to fulfillment for the three transfiguration vision records, where the promise is made by Jesus that some disciples standing there as he spoke would not taste death before witnessing Christ and the kingdom. Those two different expressions of the same timestamp in those three vision accounts were after six days and about eight days. Now these somewhat odd timestamp identifications are not contradictory. Matthew and Mark both identify the transfiguration as taking place after six days from the promise. Well, Luke identifies the same timing as being about eight days. Neither timestamp is exact, and that intentionally complex feature of the testimony, shadow prophesies of the two salvation events of the saints. The first, the event in which we hope to participate, will be in the seventh divine day, the seventh millennium just after six days. The second salvation event of the saints is scheduled for the eighth divine day, which will be just after the end of the seventh divine day. This understanding is cemented in how this three, six, eight pattern in the three transfiguration event records offering this participation being after six days and about eight days fits perfectly, absolutely perfectly, into the three, six, eight pattern of our Savior's name <laughs> and the design of the Golden Ark of the Covenant that we noted last week. Those six Greek alphanumeric letters in the name of Jesus, iota, eta, sigma, omicron, epsilon, sigma, add up to a total of eight, eight, eight. Those six letters become three eights, shadow prophesying of the three salvation events in the Creator's plan that will take place over three divine days, three millenniums, from Christ's resurrection to the second set of saints after the millennial kingdom in the eighth divine day. This salvation equation in the 368 pattern in our savior, of our Savior's name is repeated and repeated and has its significance validated in the design of the Ark of the Covenant with its six panel design that form an arc by joining three panels at each of eight corners. Now this salvation pattern, panel pattern this salvation pattern is also demonstrated in the heaven and earth covenant ritual between God and Abraham in more than one way. There were three earthbound sacrificial beasts cleaved into six components. Each of those six components had eight foundational components with their four cloven hoofs. Additionally, the three Earthbound sacrificial beasts were each three years old that were cleaved into six components to which was added two whole fowl of heaven for a total of eight sacrificial animals. 
uh, further cementing the significance of these symbols is how there was one male, the ram, and two females, the heifer and the goat. This perfectly parallels the three promised immortalizations of the Christ bridegroom and the two ecclesial bride immortalizations of the saints that take place over three millenniums, being shadowed in the three-year-old requirement for each of the earthbound sacrificial animals. The, this 368 salvation pattern is emphasized significantly in this heaven and earth covenant. This 368 salvation pattern is also demonstrated in the three daily morning and evening rituals during the kingdom of God that constituted a total of six every day for six days, but became eight on the seventh and the final day of every week when the daily burnt offering was doubled. The same 368 salvation pattern demonstrated in the three transfiguration accounts that vision of Christ being glorified in his kingdom, this pattern validates our seeing more that is hidden from others and recognizing the kingdom is coming just after the sixth day ends, in about 10 years from now. So, our understanding of the significance of those transfiguration timestamps are three-dimensionally validated in that consistent 368 pattern. But there are certainly more shadow prophecies highlighting the two divine days separating the first and the second salvation events in the Creator's plan. Christ's timestamp for the three full-day term of his death is a perfect validation of this understanding. Jesus says he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. Matthew 12 and 40, in his response at being aggravated for the enlightened community's constant insistence for more and more signs, he says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Sadly, even Christadelphians have contradicted this testimony of Jesus, promoting the Antichrist distortion of a Friday afternoon crucifixion and a Sunday morning daylight resurrection of the Son of God. That's only two nights. One day, and just a few hours of the second day, in no way whatsoever qualifying as the three days as well as three nights of his death that Jesus noted. However, the point of our current observation is that three, that full three days and three nights term under which our Messiah would continue under the power of death until his resurrection. Those three days and three nights of death were emphasized in the parallel term of our Savior's crucifixion time frame, which is defined as being three hours of light and three hours of darkness between the beginning and the end of his crucifixion, which was mercifully sh a sh mercifully short time for someone to die from crucifixion that ordinarily lasted for several torturous days. Those three full days under which our Savior was under the power of death Shadow prophesy of the three full divine days of 3,000 years until the power of death will be eliminated, not just in Christ and not just in the saints, but in all of creation. Since the millennial kingdom will last for a thousand years out of that 3,000 year term under which creation will continue under the power of death, then that leaves 2,000 years from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until the kingdom begins, which is in about 
10 years from now, perfectly matching Hosea's prophecy and the transfiguration accounts. In our Visions of the Kingdom Age class series, we also reviewed the, that 2,000 year shadow prophecy between Christ's salvation to the first set of saints in the context of the carefully detailed record of the miraculous Jordan River crossing under the leadership of Joshua, which of course is the Hebrew name for Jesus, when the enlightened community was commanded to wait a distance of 2,000 cubits from the ark that's carried into, the, into Jordan, flowing into the mouth of the Dead Sea, with its water flow reversing all the way back to the city of Adam by Zaratan, which of course means distress. The Jordan life-to-death flow reversal projects how the offer of salvation will extend back all the way to the distress by Adam, when death was that first judgment of God but that the enlightened community would have to wait for 2,000 years, like that 2,000 cubit distance, to follow Christ into that reversal from death to life. Another example of this same pattern, highlighting how the second salvation event is scheduled for two millenniums after the first, would be the time step between Joseph interpreting the bread and wine dreams of Pharaoh's baker who died in three days and Pharaoh's wine steward who rose to the right hand of power three days after the promise presented in those dreams. Joseph had to wait until the end of two full years in prison until he was raised up out of prison, pointed, appointed to be the second most powerful ruler in that kingdom, and awarded glory and wealth at the point of two full years after the promise demonstrated in the bread and wine dreams. This too, shadow, projects the two millenniums when the faithful would continue to wait in the prison of the curse of sin and death, for that promised exaltation, that glory and wealth and political power, which is about 10 years from now. Another shadow prophecy we've reviewed in the Vision of the Kingdom Age series was the 40 and 50 day pattern exhibited at the very beginning of the First Kingdom Age and the very beginning of the Ecclesial Age. The three divinely ordained feast weeks in each year during the kingdom of God project the three divine harvests of Christ and the two sets of saints. God required 50 days between the waving of the first fruits to heaven for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, representing God's harvest of Jesus Christ, to the Feast of Weeks, representing the divine harvesting of the first set of saints at the beginning the Millennial Kingdom. But at the transition from the Patriarchal Age to the First Kingdom Age, we have that 50 days immediately followed by the 40 days Moses spent in the Holy Mount with God, not eating or drinking. This 40-day and 50-day pattern is repeated with the 40 days Jesus appeared to the disciples within that 50-day uh, period between the first fruits wavings of the first two feasts when he rose to heaven that year in 30, the year 30 of the Common Era. This doubled 40-day and 50-day pattern suggests there will be 40 sets of 50-year terms between the first and second divine harvestings. The first to salvation events in the Creator's plan, equaling 2,000 years between Christ's resurrection and the resurrection, or the divine harvesting, of the first set of saints, which will be in about 10 years. From the pattern consistency 
of these shadow prophecies, we can be quite confident the second salvation event is scheduled for the year 2030. 2,000 years to divine days after that first salvation event of our Savior. But we have no idea when our judgment will take place within this 10-year time frame. Some have suggested a 10-year span from the return of Christ to the immortalization of the saints to introduce the restored kingdom age. Now, one recent study suggests the return of Christ this very month, April of 2020. I've never been a fan of that 10-year suggestion for the term of the judgment. I consider the evidence to be exceptionally weak and presumptuous. Additionally, I personally refuse to jump on the signs for the return of Christ bandwagon. Personally, my focus is on the timing of the kingdom, not the timing of the judgment. And I do not want to aggravate our judge by becoming obsessed with signs of the times, just like the enlightened generation to whom Jesus came the first time, who were always demanding more and more signs. But we certainly do have to make it through the judgment in order to inherit the kingdom. At some point in the next few years uh, or days, we're going to face that judgment where our eternal fate will be determined. Now, another timing issue in reference to the judgment uh, for those who are accountable would be the equation that Paul uses with the Thessalonian brothers and sisters as he comforts them concerning ecclesial members that have died. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, picking up at verse 13, we read, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which were asleep, meaning dead, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep are dead, in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, or more properly interpreted, precede, shall not precede them which are asleep. Or dead, for the Lord Himself shall descend from the dead, from from heaven, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We're told that the living will not precede the dead, but that we will all be immortalized together. And that's what's being expressed when Paul says that we will meet the Lord in the air and the cloud. We certainly know this is not some, some description of what is commonly called a rapture, by paganized Christianity, where the living rise up through the atmosphere into heaven. We know that the kingdom of heaven is going to be on the earth. And we know that Jesus brings the reward to the saints from heaven when he comes. We don't go to heaven for him to provide that reward. The point of corruption in Paul's explanation is the intentional complexity that God uses to define that immortalization procedure with both the air and the cloud symbols. These are both common scriptural symbols of immortality. Jesus answers Nicodemus in reference to how one can be born again to inherit the kingdom by explaining one has to be reborn 
into a spirit nature. And that this new spirit nature is like the wind, like moving air. In fact, both the Hebrew and Greek words that are translated as spirit, as in Holy Spirit, are words that mean air, such as ruach in the Hebrew, and pneuma in the Greek. An avenue of validating creational testimony is that just as there was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, capable of providing eternal, continuing life, so it is the trees of life in this sin-cursed natural order today that scrub our atmosphere of the dangerous carbon dioxide that our sin-cursed bodies exhale and also produce fresh, clean oxygen, air, through the process of photosynthesis. Another creational validation of the identification of air with the spirit nature is the atomic structure of the two primary components making up 99% of our atmosphere, our air. These are oxygen with its 888 atomic structure, just like the name of our savior with this 888 numeric construction. Each oxygen atom has eight protons, eight electrons, and eight neutrons. Therefore, eight, eight, eight. The other component to our atmosphere is nitrogen, which has a 777 atomic structure and makes up 78% of our air. These two numbers, seven and eight, identify the two resurrections of our Savior, because Jesus was actually the seventh participant in a resurrection identified in the Bible, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, with Lazarus being the sixth, and then Jesus. That resurrection was from the tomb back to mortality. The resurrection referenced in scripture that is referred to as an awakening. This took place on a seventh day, late on Saturday afternoon, just after three days and three nights since he died, exactly like he said it would happen. So he was the seventh to experience a resurrection back to mortality, and on a seventh day, just a few hours later, he experienced his second resurrection, this time from dying mortal nature to immortal nature, making him also the eighth to participate in a resurrection. In the day after that seventh day, therefore a kind of eighth day, but then again, also the first resurrection to immortality, and also on a first day of the week, just after sunset as the day began to dawn or began in, in the early evening on Sunday, long before sunrise. These two resurrections of our Savior shadow prophesy of the two resurrections of the saints in the exact same seven and eight pattern. The first set of saints will be immortalized at the beginning of that seventh day, the millennial kingdom. The second set of saints will be immortalized following the conclusion of the millennial kingdom in that eighth divine day, just like the two resurrections of our Savior, first to mortality and then to immortality. Now, in addition to the air association with uh, immortalization, the cloud identification that Paul references to the Thessalonians is another salvation symbol. The seven on that transfiguration mount were all enveloped in that single cloud. There was Christ and God and the five who were the living and the dead, Moses and Elijah and Peter, James, and John, all together in the cloud on the mount. We read this in Luke's account in Luke 9 and 34, 
While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. This is the same shadow prophecy demonstrated at the first two divine sanctuary dedications. In each, a cloud entered the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. On that first day of operation, actually driving out the mortal priests, as there was no place for mortals in that shadow prophecy. It is this cloud representation that explains why Paul describes the saints as a great cloud of witnesses, and why Jesus says that when he reveals himself to the world, he will come in the clouds of heaven, which refers to the immortalized saints. We also know about the presence of God in the cloud above the tabernacle in the wilderness, and we should remember the observation we made last week of the first ritual in the Most Holy Chamber on the Day of Atonement, where the high priest generated the incense cloud to save his life. So, we can be confident that when Paul describes how the living and the dead will join Christ in the air and the clouds, that this represents the immortalization procedure. So, the timing distinction Paul makes to the Thessalonians in reference to judgment and reward indicated that the dead precede the living in judgment, but everyone is immortalized at the same time. Those accountable to Christ's judgment will be dramatically fewer in number than those who have died over the previous 6,000 years. It is quite reasonable the living will be called to the judgment last. Another timing distinction is that those rejected at the judgment will not be permitted to rejoin society. They will die forever, even before the immortalization procedure of the saints. This is pretty clearly presented in one of Christ's judgment parables, the parable of the wheat and the tares. First, we should understand the direct relationship between this parable and the second harvest feast week. The Feast of Weeks, which just happened to be the wheat harvest. Frequently, the Feast of Weeks is inappropriately identified in our community as representing the salvation of Jesus Christ, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's a very inappropriate suggestion. Just as there were three divinely appointed harvest feast weeks in the structure of the kingdom of God, there are three divinely ordained harvests of God's matured image and likeness. These divine harvests of the faithful from within the enlightened community are the three salvation events in the Creator's plan. The Feast of Weeks was the wheat harvest, when two leavened loaves of wheat bread were waved to heaven on the first day of the Feast of Weeks, the day that's called Pentecost in Acts 2, when the 120 received the holy power of God directly from heaven on that high Sabbath day. That wheat harvest of the Feast of Weeks defines the same events that Jesus highlighted in his parable of the wheat and the tares, which he defined as a parable of the kingdom of heaven. So, let's consider the progression of events that Jesus presents in his parable. After it's been observed that tares are going right along with the wheat, and it would be difficult to tell the difference between the two separate plants in this one field, this ecclesial field of the enlightened community, that the wheat and the tares will have to grow together side by side until the harvest. Those who harvest the reapers, are identified by Jesus in his private explanation to his disciples as referring to the angels. The angels of heaven will assist Jesus in the reaping process. 
not simply the gathering together of those accountable to Christ's judgment, but also the judgment process itself, which is depicted here as the separation of the wheat from the tares. They can tell the difference now that it's harvest time. We read in Matthew 13 and verse 30, Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So let's notice that the farmer instructs the reapers, the, the angels of heaven, to gather and dispose of the tares, burning them, before the wheat is gathered into the barn. Now let's re review how Jesus explains this parable later and privately to his disciples, picking up in verse 36. We, we see Jesus, uh, we see the disciples asking Jesus to, under, to explain the parable. Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. That's what their attention was drawn to, the tares. Verse 37. He answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, that diabolos, that um, uh, serpent frame of reference, that diabolos effect we've talked about. The harvest is the end of the world, or the end of the age, as it's more properly translated. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world, this age. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then... Shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father? Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, Jesus is the farmer who sows the good seed. The devil is the enemy that sowed the tares within the wheat field. That's, again, Diabolos, that Diabolos serpent thought process that mankind chose in the Garden of Eden and we all suffer with, just as Jesus did, but he was the only one never to even allow a single Diabolos temptation to conceive into a guilty sin. Now, a number of our community teachers have suggested the tares are not members of the enlightened community, but the unenlightened throughout the world. That is a huge and impossible mistake. Based on the impossible presumption that Christadelphians couldn't possibly qualify as tares. Those tares are those within the enlightened community who will be judged and rejected. The reason we absolutely know that for a fact is that the tares are completely destroyed in this parable before the wheat is safely stored away in the barn. And we know very well that the entire world will not be wiped out completely until after the millennial kingdom has ended. Not at the beginning, not at the wheat harvest, only the second of the three harvest feast weeks. We're told the timing is at the end of the age, the end of the aeon. The Greek word that is poorly translated here is the end of the world. This takes place at the end of the ecclesial age, which only lasts for another 10 years. Those tares can only represent one group, the part of the enlightened community that will be called to the judgment, but rejected. They will be destroyed before the saints are immortalized. These are the ones in Christ's parable defined as the wedding guests without oil in their lamp, 
when the bridegroom arrives. The servant who does nothing with the talent he was invested with. The goats who do not provide for the needs of the least of Christ's brethren. The ones attending the wedding of the king's son without wearing the white wedding garment that represents the righteous deeds of the saints. And those who Jesus repeatedly says will weep and gnash their teeth in sorrow and regret upon learning of their rejection. So we know that the angels will be involved in gathering those accountable to the judgment and involved in the judging procedures, that separating of the wheat from the tares, the burning of those tares, and the prepping of the wheat for its storage. But, but, the angels of heaven will not be the administrators on earth in the kingdom. Paul makes this issue clear in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. He says, For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. The Greek word translated world here indicates the inhabitable world, not the age. The world will be subject to Christ and the immortalized saints who are defined with that intentional complexity divine communication pattern as the cherubim, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the angel clothed with a cloud having a rainbow crown, and the composite man that Daniel saw by the river Hiddekel and John also saw on the Isle of Patmos. So, the next question to address in relation to our final judgment is who will be required to attend Christ's judgment? This isn't going to be an invitation. Attendance will be mandated. But what is it that qualifies that mandated attendance? This is another one of those significant issues of separation between fellowships. The three dominant understandings in the enlightened community over the last 125 years are understood as one, that gospel enlightenment makes one responsible to Christ's judgment. Two, that only those who have participated in the covenant binding ritual will qualify to be included in Christ's judgment. Or three, that this is a feature of God's righteousness that's inconsequential and should not be a point of contention or separation. All three of these different understandings have one mistaken issue in common. They all examine the issue as if the point of reference is ourselves and not God. The first understanding presumes that it's our level of enlightenment that serves as the qualifying factor. The second understanding presumes that it's our personal response to enlightenment, our participation in a covenant-binding ritual that supposedly satisfies a legal condemnation imposed in Eden. The third understanding presumes that whatever the correct understanding of this feature of God's righteousness may be, that it's meaningless compared to the value of fellowship among professed believers. Each of these understandings demonstrates varying degrees of disrespect to God. Whenever we begin to think something about testimony is all about us, that we are the ultimate point of reference and we're in the wrong thought process and will not be able to correctly understand the related features of God's righteousness. Everything is all about our God, not us. Flipping the focus onto ourselves in matters of what is divinely right is the procedure of heart-generated thinking, that Diabolos effect. The issue of qualification for a required participation in Christ's judgment is not simply our enlightenment or our salvation. The foundational issue is the vindication of God's righteousness. According to Jesus, most of those resurrected back to mortality for the purpose of judgment are only going to be rejected. He declared more than once at the conclusion of a judgment parable 
that many will be called to judgment, but only a few are going to be chosen. If Christ's judgment was all about our salvation, then why are so many going to be raised only to be permanently returned to the grave? Our salvation is simply a side issue, a very important one to us, certainly, but just a side issue to the real purpose of the impending judgment. The real issue is divine vindication, understanding how we either contradicted or validated the Creator's righteousness, and being required to answer why we did not understand and why we offended Him. Those who are accountable to Christ's judgment will be required to understand God was right. Even the many who will be rejected at Christ's judgment are going to be made to understand God was right, and they opposed His rightness, His righteousness, and that is why they will perish forever. It is God's vindication, not simply some measure of our enlightenment, that serves as the foundational determination of who will be required to attend that judgment, whether living or dead. A particularly troubling avenue of disrespect to God in this issue, of who will be required to attend Christ's judgment, is defining this in the terms of being responsible to God's judgments, as they will be executed by his Son. Um, we, if we say only the enlightened are responsible to God's judgment, then we are suggesting that anyone not required to attend Christ's judgment is somehow not responsible to the terms of God's righteousness. That is a rather insulting denial that the principle of death is not a divine judgment, that death was not imposed in Eden directly due to sin, that death, that last enemy to be eliminated by Christ, had to actually be part of that very good creational order prior to that first corrupting sin. If we insist that only those who attend Christ's judgment are the ones who are responsible to God's judgments, then we declare that death is not, and has never been, a divine judgment. That is a defining offense, offensive, incorrect understanding. There is no one that ever existed that will not experience divine judgment in one way or another. We all die. Some will be raised up again to understand God's righteousness, no matter whether we faithfully validated that righteousness in our lives or contradicted that righteousness. We are not required to attend Christ's judgment due to a unique responsibility, separate from the rest of mankind. We are accountable to the principle of divine vindication. That is not true for most of mankind. Most mankind will suffer the judgment of God through death, without ever having to face Christ's judgment, as they are responsible to God's judgment, but not accountable to the vindication of His righteousness. Now, this issue of divine vindication being the primary qualifier for judgment attendance can be validated several ways, as we can always validate what is actually true three-dimensionally due to the principle of God-manifestation, which is basically multitudinous singularity and can be simply expressed as harmony. Because every single part of our Heavenly Father's testimony has to fit together perfectly from every angle of examination without contradiction. So let's apply that three-dimensional test to this understanding of divine vindication in relation to who will be required to attend Christ's judgment. As always, we need a foundational understanding to apply that three-dimensional harmony in order to witness a greater measure of the hidden glory in all of God's testimony. One of the features of our Creator's eternal righteousness that should be understood <laughs> and highly valued by those hoping to participate in God's conditional promise of salvation is the principle of extended benefit. The reason we should particularly appreciate this principle is that this is the very foundational basis for our prospective salvation. Not a single one of us 
actually deserves salvation on the basis of our own merits. We all deserve eternal death. But the Creator has offered to extend the benefits His Son earned to those His Son will choose to include in those benefits. This is demonstrated in the principles of grace and imputed righteousness. However, the benefits of grace and imputed righteousness are not universal and not without qualifications, which is why nowhere near everyone that has ever been enlightened will be invited to participate in salvation. Remember our first lesson in this series. The Creator's primary goal is quality, not quantity. We can only be saved on the basis of God extending his eternal approval of his perfectly compliant son to others who have not been so perfectly compliant. This is the principle of extended benefit. Our salvation would be impossible without this feature of our Creator's righteousness. God would, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus would be all alone in creation. But that was not the divine plan. From the very beginning, God declared that it would not be good for Adam to be all alone, and so he made a bride for Adam, for Adam to love and to be loved. It would not be good if Jesus was all alone after that last judgment and the elimination of the last enemy of God's plan, death. And so the principle of extended benefit provides for an ecclesial bride for the Son of God to love and to be loved. This is why a part of Adam's body was used as the foundation for the construction of Eve, just as Eve was made because and from Adam, so the saints, the bride of Christ, are made from and for Jesus. A demonstration of this feature of God's righteousness would be the terms of participation for the ritual of Passover, the passing over of death. The divine law was that exclusively the circumcised could partake of the Passover meal. But it, it was impossible to circumcise wives and daughters, sisters. Therefore, on what basis could those wives and daughters and sisters of the circumcised Israelites participate in the meal for the passing over of death? It was on the basis of this principle of extended benefit. The only reason the faithful get to participate in the substance of this ritual, our eternal escape from death, is due to the antitypical circumcising, the substance of this, uh, the circumcising of the flesh of Christ in his sacrificial death. Extending this demonstration further, in other words, three-dimensionally, is done by recognizing that the titles of Jesus are defined in the same terms as the circumcised men whose Passover participation benefit was extended to their wives, daughters, and sisters. Our Savior is identified all through Scripture as our Father, our husband, and our brother. He's described as the everlasting Father in Isaiah 9. Jesus declares those who do the will of his Father are his brothers and sisters and mother. And of course, Ephesians defines the relationship between a husband and wife as being based on the relationship between Christ and the Ecclesia. So this divine principle of extended benefit is foundational to our own salvation and shadow validated within the laws and rituals of the kingdom of God. So how does this principle apply to the foundational qualification of judgment attendance as being subject to the vindication of God's righteousness. It is because the principle of extended benefit will be evident in the attendance roster of Christ's judgment. Not only will Jesus enjoy a vindication before those who abused and opposed him, the saints are also promised a degree of divinely provided vindication in front of those who opposed them. These promises are above and beyond the lesser qualification of mere enlightenment. Jesus promised the Sanhedrin his trial 
that they would personally witness his glory. Jesus told them, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. These men who refused to believe Jesus, despite all his validating miracles, were promised that they will come back from the dead in order to witness the glory of the man they were planning to have killed. They will be resurrected back to mortality for the express purpose of the vindication of Jesus. And then they will die forever. We're also informed that those who pierced him will be required to witness his glory. In Revelation 1, we read, Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. There was a Roman soldier who literally pierced the body of Jesus on the cross to see if he was truly dead. If we try to insist the application cannot apply to the Roman soldier, but must be limited to the shadow application of the Jewish people, then we do not understand or value God's creational testimony of shadows. We cannot have a shadow without substance casting that shadow. The insistence that some statement in scripture can only be understood as a shadow and is therefore pretty inconsequential is an indication of a heart-generated thought process, an illegitimate dismissing of divine testimony as being nothing but a shadow, which is just a defensive attempt to refuse to abandon an incorrect understanding that cannot be validated three-dimensionally. There can be no shadow if there is no substance. That's a law of creation, which came into existence by the verbal commands of the Creator. God's spoken words have to confirm his written words. A shadow cannot exist without substance casting that shadow. Therefore, the actual person who pierced the body of Jesus will have to rise from the dead to experience and suffer the vindication of the Son of God, just like the Sanhedrin, not for any consideration of salvation, but simply to understand they violated the righteousness of God and are accountable to that vindication. But the principle of extended benefit does not end with the vindication of our Messiah. An example of this is the holiness status of a believing believer's child. Paul makes this issue clear when he tells the Corinthian brothers and sisters in chapter 7. <clears throat> he says, And the woman which has an husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. That holiness status of the children simply on the basis of parentage is a demonstration of this principle of extended benefit. That designation of holiness for the child of a believer cannot possibly be dismissed as meaningless then we would have to dismiss holiness in general as being meaningless, which would be exceptionally foolish. It was very consequential to ignore the principle of holiness during the kingdom of God. People would be banished forever, and even brutally executed by stoning for disrespecting the principle of holiness. Therefore, the extended benefit of assigning holiness to the child of even just a single believer has to be significant and consequential. The benefits God offers for faithful service can be extended to those we love. We cannot directly save others, as Jesus does, but we can indirectly benefit them in many ways. This is a divine principle, a feature of our Creator's rightness. Therefore, it should not be surprising to see this divine principle of extended benefit being demonstrated in the context of the foundational qualification for who will be required to attend Christ's judgment. Micah expresses this comforting understanding of a promised vindication for the faithful, the children of God in Christ. 
As we listen to the prophet's testimony, let's note the timing reference to the vindication being referenced as following the resurrection. So Micah 7, um, picking up at uh, uh, verse 8, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, such as the darkness of death, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is my enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her. Which said unto me, Where is the Lord your God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as mire in the streets in the day that thy walls are to be built. Micah uses the terms of resurrection. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, that darkness of the grave, Yahweh will be a light unto me. We read that God will bring him forth to the light, and then the prophet will behold the righteousness of God. And it is at this time that God will plead his cause and his enemy will be ashamed that taunted him with the question, where is the Lord your God? The prophet declares that he will personally behold his previous enemy and that enemy will be humiliated and destroyed in front of him. At that point when God will bring the prophet back to the light and the prophet will behold the righteousness of God. The divine vindication of God's righteousness, which is the foundational qualification for judgment attendance, certainly including the enlightened and those bound by a covenant relationship, but not exclusive to those limited understandings. We are not the focus of everything. That center focus is always God. Everyone is responsible to his judgments in one way or another. The foundational standard for who will be required to attend the judgment of Jesus Christ is the vindication of God's righteousness. God already knows who will live forever and who will die forever. He isn't waiting to find out. He already knows that God will require a very large amount of people, no matter whether they're living or dead at the time, to face judgment. So that those who are being raised only for rejection will actually truly understand that God was right and they were wrong. Then they will be destroyed forever, after God's vindication. We should never, ever define those being required to attend their final judgment on the basis of somehow being uniquely responsible to God's judgment. There is no one that escapes divine judgment. It is universal. But not everyone is accountable to the vindication of God's righteousness. Those who have understood and faithfully and energetically validated that divine righteousness in their thoughts and words and deeds will be afforded sufficient grace and imputed righteousness to qualify their salvation, hopefully our salvation. Those who have been exposed to and offended as well as contradicted the terms of God's righteousness without repentance, will have to be made to understand their incredible foolishness before they die forever. Christ's judgment is first and foremost about the vindication of our Creator's righteousness, and secondarily about the salvation of the saints. We don't come first. God does. We still have quite a bit of ground to cover on the subject of Christ's judgment, but time is limited. If we expect to be comprehensive in our understandings, one issue we will need to address is the quite unsettling but unmistakable pattern in the parables of Jesus where there is a distinct emphasis on rejection at his judgment. The parables of the lazy wedding attendants could even refuel their lamps, the, the wickedly lazy servant who buried the one talent he was given, 
and the goats who refused to care for the least of Christ's ecclesial brethren when they needed food or clothing or shelter or comfort or protection. We see this emphasis in how three of the four of the examples in Christ's parable of the sower demonstrate an extremely unproductive and unacceptable response to having been invested with the seed of God's word. The list goes on and on. We have to ask why Jesus insists so frequently on this rather scary emphasis on rejection. We'll also have to consider the, the two separate resurrections, not the two resurrections of the saints that are scheduled for the beginning of both the seventh and eighth millenniums from creation. This issue is the two resurrection categories that have been a point of confusion in our enlightened community for far more than a hundred years and has been partially responsible for a couple different fellowship separations in the enlightened community over the last 125 years. We'll also need to address the terms of our judgment, the issues that our judge will consider for deciding whether we will live forever or die forever. But due due to the time required to develop any one of these issues conclusively and three-dimensionally, we will need we will need to look at these issues in our next class.